0: You have three rib fractures. You have a mortality of 15% if you're over the age of 65.
1: Welcome to this episode of Trauma Talk. Today, my guests are Dr. Sudbeck and Dr. Slider, who will be discussing the evolution of fracture management. Doctors, would you please introduce yourself?
0: I'm Joe Slider. I'm a trauma surgeon and acute care surgeon at
1: here at Wesley.
2: I'm Craig Sudbeck. I'm a general surgeon that covers trauma here at Wesley Medical Center. So what
1: has been the past management of rib fractures? Yeah, so,
2: you know, when I was in medical school,
0: uh, we, we talked about rib fractures. And, you know, even at that time, kind of the treatment of rib fractures was mostly pain control and that they would uh, they would heal on their own. Over the course of uh, even the years I've been in training, we've really kind of seen that change. I think you know, the basis really of rib fracture care at the beginning is, is good multimodal pain control. What that typically entails is pain control not only with opioid uh, analgesics, but also with things like Tylenol and ibuprofen, uh, lidocaine patches. Through the time and treatment, that's uh, still part of what we do, but what we've seen in the past six years really is an increase in the uh, amount of times that those patients actually go to the operating room and get their ribs fixed.
2: So to piggyback off what Dr. Slider was, was explaining, take a pretty significant decline in their overall state of health to be considered for rib fixation. So, the the patient who ended up in respiratory failure and then on the ventilator generally still wouldn't be plated. They would be, uh, we would attempt weaning for days or even up to a few weeks before considering plating them, which then, of course, had terrible outcomes when they were plated. Somebody who's in respiratory failure and been on the vent unsuccessfully weaned for any significant amount of time, uh, then undergoing a big thoracic operation generally didn't do very well. And that really became a self fulfilling prophecy in the past and led to people not, or to surgeons not wanting to pursue rib plating because the patients did so poorly from that surgery. And somewhere along the way, somebody smarter than me decided to, you know, look at that again and do what our orthopedic and neurosurgical friends do, and that's to fix bony injuries early if the patient is stable enough uh, to try to prevent long-term complications. So there certainly is still a role for non-operative management of the rib-fractured patient, but there's more of a push to fix these rib fractures early for a variety of reasons that we'll discuss. And I think looking
0: back, you know, when we we used to look at rib-fractured patients uh, there was sort of that that Goldilocks zone where you had to have just the right patient to be able to decide to take them to go fix their ribs, and often we would have patients that have you know severe chest injuries and flail chest, and they're on the ventilator already. And and a lot of times we would look at that patient and say, you know what, they're probably too sick. We need to let their lungs recover. We need to let them try to get better, as you were just mentioning. And then the other patients that were seemingly doing well, just like you said, they would be they would be too good. You know, They're going to be okay. We, we don't need to fix their ribs because they're not suffering any respiratory failure from their rib fractures. And so what that really meant was you from both sides kind of disqualified a lot of patients that otherwise uh, we now know may have benefited from getting their ribs fixed. And I think
2: it's important to understand why for such a long period of time, rib fractures weren't fixed. The ribs, of course, are, are very dynamic bones. Unlike most other bones in the body, that can be immobilized for 6, 8, 12 weeks. The ribs can't. We have to breathe 12 to 16 times a minute minimum, so the ribs have to move that many times. And getting those ribs to, to stay still is a, is obviously a challenge that wasn't really addressed aggressively in the past. You can Google images from rib fracture management that was, you know, managed operatively all the way back to the early 1900s. And there are these brutal pictures of, of these percutaneous pins or rods that attach to rib, ribs and then they, you know, essentially put them on a hanger to keep constant tension on that rib. And obviously that didn't work out very well. And there's been different techniques along the way that have helped refine that, but the rib fracture management is difficult, not only because of the physiology involved in the respiratory failure, um, but just because you, you have to move those ribs no matter what. We used these criteria in the past to really exclude a lot of people from this because they 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 looked so good or they looked so bad that we w- weren't going to have a, a way to fix them or to help improve them or at least that was the thought which I you know the data has now shown multiple times is it was really just not the case that both of those patients can potentially benefit from a, a operative fixation of their rib fractures so the the non operative management certainly still has its role the 17 year old who playing football or working on a weekend and, and gets smashed by a bull and has a few non-displaced rib fractures and they're really not having really any pain or respiratory symptoms, those don't have to be fixed. They don't necessarily need to be brought into the hospital. They don't necessarily need to have a surgery. And then there are people on the opposite end of the spectrum who have a a couple of non-displaced rib fractures, but they're 96 years old. They have a mechanical valve on Coumadin and terrible heart failure, have COPD, etc. That patient probably are going to manage non-operatively too but the the majority of people in that bell curve are in between those extremes and when need to be considered for for rib fixation operatively what considerations should the rural physician consider when treating
1: rib fractures
2: the evaluation you know i would always consult with with a, a trauma surgeon at a level one trauma center because again the mindset that dogma is difficult to change in medicine and the mindset that we need to change. It's going to take a while for that, that these patients should be evaluated for rib fixation. So I would encourage the, whether in a big city or a small town, if you have a patient with a rib fractures, I would, I would call your transfer facility, your trauma facility, and at least have that discussion because the 25-year-old who has six rib fractures but shows up in your ER and doesn't have that much pain, we all know that aside from attention pneumothorax, rib fractures don't kill people. It's the pneumonia that you get a week later from poor pulmonary hygiene. So the decision about the operative or non-operative route really doesn't always happen right away at, at time zero. It's an evaluation that on goes. People look good for 12 hours and we see this all the time. They come in and don't look bad, and then the next morning they're on six liters of oxygen. They can't even get out a full sentence. So I would encourage the the providers, especially in the rural settings, to to have that discussion early. Even if the patient looks fine, call us and and have the discussion about whether or not we think this patient would benefit from having their ribs fixed. And with the ability of, of clouding images, we can do that. We don't have to necessarily transfer them here, but we can look at their fracture pattern on a CT scan it gets clouded over and say, you know, they. They might not need it, but we should probably watch them here and at least have the discussion here.
0: And I think it's important, too, for the you know people in the rural areas to talk to patients about that, too. I think sometimes it's very difficult to try to tell somebody that maybe is doing okay right now that they need to come halfway across the state to be evaluated for that. But when we really talk about after rib fixation repair, if patients are good candidates for that, then we're talking about, getting back to activity sooner and not being in continuous pain from these rib fractures for sometimes months or even a year. And for somebody who may be very active or farmers that, that have very physically demanding jobs... That can make a big difference, both in terms of being able to go back to work and and be productive, but also in terms of quality of life and not having chronic pain and not living
2: in chronic pain. So how does this procedure improve recovery time? The the studies have shown for all, basically all areas, I'm sorry, all patient populations that they've studied, there's... Shorter ICU days, less ventilator dependence, faster recovery time and getting out of the hospital and faster return to, I don't know the term that they use anymore, but the life as the patient sees uh, having a good quality of life, basically.
0: And I think an important component of that, too, is you know even non-operative management, even in the age of multimodal pain control, still often requires opioids. And when you have people who have continuous pain and go home with prescriptions for opioids, which they require to get better, that raises their risk of opiate use disorder and and certainly people living with chronic pain are at higher risk of that also. So in the age of the opioid epidemic and everything else, I think that having an option that may reduce the risk of that is a good option to take, or at least a good option to
1: consider. Are there any associated injuries that may be missed with rib fractures? Yeah, I
0: think especially when you have... Patients with left-sided rib fractures, and particularly lower left-sided rib fractures, the the important injury not to overlook or to be suspicious for is a spleen injury. Very frequently, the spleen sits underneath all of those ribs that are are fractured on x-ray or CT scan, and certainly that's an injury that you don't
1: want to downplay or overlook or miss. Would you describe to us the criteria you use right now when deciding if a patient requires rib plating or not? the first
2: thing you have to decide for rib fracture patients is what is their respiratory status so right away, aside from deciding upfront if you're going to do non-operative or operative management, if you're considering operation, first thing you have to understand is their, their status as far as their, their trauma and their stability. So if the hemodynamically unstable patient, of course, we're not going to plate those right away. Somebody who has a, a severe TBI, GCS less than eight, those patients have things that are more important than getting their ribs fixed. But once you move beyond that, and again, that's a decision we would probably make at, at our facilities, but then you have to decide their ventilator status. So the the patient who is on the ventilator from their thoracic trauma from rib fractures, we're going to pretty strongly consider and recommend treating their rib fractures operatively. There's of course some caveats to that you know if they're right next to the spine or right next to the costal cartilage those generally are very difficult to fix operatively but the patient who is already in respiratory failure from their thoracic trauma that that is a patient that you should very 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 strongly consider fixation
0: another point that i want to add on to that though is that on the non-intubated patient pulmonary problems respiratory failure does not only mean hypoxia i mean when we're talking about young patients Those are patients that could probably ventilate on one lung without significant hypoxia. You know, these are these are young, healthy people. And so you can't use hypoxia or oxygen use alone as a measure of whether or not those rib fractures are are causing pulmonary problems. So when we look at the chest wall injury society guidelines, we look at things like is their respiratory rate high? Or are they able to do what we would expect them to be able to do on an incentive spirometer? And how effective are they at being able to cough? When we talked about the physiology we said that the ribs are are dynamic hammock we don't really have a way of immobilizing those but even with pain control patients will try to immobilize them themselves it hurts to move so i don't want to move and that leads to things like not being able to cough very well which in geriatric patients can obviously set them up for pneumonia and set them up for worsening respiratory status that kind of starts that cycle of, of, of decline. And that's why in geriatric patients, the mortality from rib fractures is so high. And so pulmonary derangements that we look at are not all
2: necessarily hypoxia. So aside from the ventilated patient, like Dr. Slider is saying, which will... The, you know, a majority of the patients that we get sent are not already on the ventilator from from rib fractures or from their traumas. We get sent people who are not on on the vent and might be on two liters of oxygen or no oxygen at all. So that's what Dr. Slider is talking about. Historically, we look at them and say, we're not going to fix them. They're, they're doing fine. They're not on the vent. But we look at other markers. So respiratory rate greater than 20, not having or having less than 50% of their predicted volume of their incentive spirometer use and just poor cough or even just pain you know having a pain score greater than five out of ten are metrics that we use to decide whether or not we're going to fix somebody and that's piggybacked off of imaging as well you know again the the rib fractures that are non-displaced and only have two of them we're going to have patients who are rating that 10 out of 10 pain for weeks and and that doesn't mean we're going to necessarily fix that. The CT scan that looks pretty gnarly and the patient's not reporting a bunch of pain, but they can't use their spirometer well and they're they're not mobilizing very well, we're going to recommend fixation for that patient.
0: Often a symptom that people with rib fractures have is when they take a deep breath or they're moving around a lot, they can literally feel those fractures moving. And what that feels like is really a painful clicking almost of their ribs. And if you have a patient that has lateral rib fractures and they have clicking that's a sign of chest wall instability and that's that's a symptom that we take very seriously in terms of taking those people to the operating room fixing their rib fractures because those are the have enough instability that they're going to be at higher risk of having non-union and they're going to be at higher risk of having that clicking still persist months from now or a year from now and so whenever i hear a patient that says hey i've got this clicking or it hurts but it does okay those are people we talk about fixing
2: yeah, so that is a very good point. The, the patient who already has that sensation, they might not say clicking. They might say, I, I can just literally feel it breaking or I can feel it move every time. Popping. Popping, yeah, that, that, I, I 100% agree. That is, a in my mind, a very early indicator of somebody who should be fixed because their chest wall is already that unstable. And it, it, when, when it's happening with every respiratory cycle or even multiple times per day, the chances of that rib ossifying and having bridging osteophytes form seems much lower. So that, you know, because we move, we move 16 or 12, 16 times a minute. So expecting that to heal while you're breathing just at least sounds like it's going to be a painful recovery. But at, at worst means that it might never heal and they'll have that sensation weeks, months, years later. The other thing, point that Dr. Slider's comment triggered in my mind is... expensive polaroids or snapshots in time. So you get a CT of the chest an hour after their injury and the rib fractures might be non-displaced or minimally displaced. And then we get the patient transferred and we typically do a CT scan with 3D reconstruction so we can see the thoracic cage in a 3D model and the rib fractures are much more displaced than the original scan shows. And that's because of the physiology of the chest. You keep moving and the natural curve of the, of the chest wall if you break one of those bones or multiple bones, it wants to move away from force. So one of those fractures will usually collapse in more and more as the respiratory cycles repeat. So that just furthers the point that we discussed earlier that the evaluation for operative fixation of rib fractures is not a one-time thing that happens at time of your initial trauma evaluation. A lot of times it's a repeated evaluation because those fractures tend to get more more displaced as time goes along and of course as that happens symptoms get worse your pain gets worse then your breathing gets worse your respiratory failure risk goes up so the discussion should be ongoing. For people that are
0: treating patients in in
2: maybe rural areas
0: or areas where you don't have a level one trauma center, if these patients come in three, four days after their injury and they may have done okay the first couple of days but are continually getting worse or they're having these symptoms that, that we've talked about, they're still candidates for getting their ribs fixed. And the people that do okay for a little while and then start to go downhill They're the ones that kind of fit into the people we thought we should fix in the first place. So if you have a patient that comes in even three, four days after their injury or a few days after their injury, but they're having pain and they are not really thriving or getting better at home give us a call let us look at those i think those are those are all patients that really probably would benefit from at
2: least evaluation and those patients don't have to be in the er if you're if you're a primary care provider and the patient was seen in the er two or three days ago and now they're following up with you because their pain is getting worse they don't have to be in your er or in your trauma bay for you to call us Mortality
0: in geriatric patients with rib fractures is really cannot be understated. If you have three rib fractures, you have a mortality of 15% if you're over the age of 65. And with each successive rib fracture, that goes up 8 to 10%. So when you have this patient that fell and they have five rib fractures, that's somebody that, you know, if they came into our trauma bay, we would put them in the ICU because the risk of mortality in that patient population is so high. That's why, as you were saying, The the opportunity then to make them better or to try to avoid that is the greatest.
2: I mean, those are the people that really need their ribs fixed. Would you discuss the procedure? Walk us through it? So there there's a lot of different techniques that people use, but we we typically use a standard thoracotomy incision to gain access to the, the chest wall. The location of that incision, of course, depends on on where your fractures are. But after we get down through your the skin, the subcutaneous tissue, the tissue, and the muscle, the basis of the of the rib fracture management is just to get the rib fracture reduced just like the orthopedic surgeons would with their orthopedic injuries. And then we hold the rib in reduction. We put a plate across it. It's a titanium plate. If you go to your local hardware store or just a simple mending plate, it's the same thing. It's a, a long thin piece of metal that has holes all the way down along the, the length of the piece of metal. And you have to form it to the rib because everybody's rib contour is a little bit different but once you do that you run titanium screws down through that hold that fracture in, in line and that's really i mean there's a, we do quite a bit more for I, I tell patients that 50% of the surgery is fixing the ribs the other 50% is controlling post operative pain so we do cryoablation of the intercostal nerves the anesthesia team frequently will do some sort of nerve block at the beginning of the procedure and then we put a pain pump catheter next to the, the spine to help afterwards as well. But that's the basis of the surgery. The patients all get a chest tube because we're, we inevitably get into the chest a little bit, uh, sometimes on purpose if we put the plates on the inside. But they all, they all come out with a chest tube and we try to get those out within the first 48 hours. And the the patients, they weren't intubated before. Just about all of them get extubated at the end of the case. It's very rare for them to need to stay on the ventilator after a case like this. As soon as you
0: hit uh, the PACU or as soon as you get to the ICU after surgery, we're aggressive about trying to get the patient from surgery to the next step of their recovery. So we try to get their chest tube out in the first 24, 48 hours. We try to get them up and mobilizing and moving as soon as possible thereafter. I think you know even in the setting of doing great so the patient that comes in they get their ribs fixed, they're doing excellent post-operatively we try to get their chest tube out in a day or two and so they're in the hospital at least for a day or two from that and then on average I think two or three days post operatively, in a patient that is doing great is probably what's to be expected now often when we have patients that come in that are that are have multiple injuries and they have other comorbidities and they you know those patients probably stay a little bit longer because we need to also help them with physical therapy or occupational therapy and planning for after the hospitalization but in an isolated rib fracture patient three four days post-operatively
2: would be optimal and they're discharge state is very different. You know, we're not talking about discharging on six liters of oxygen and on scheduled oxycodone and stuff. I would say, and this is just a generalization for our patients that we've done here, most of them are going home off oxygen, and almost all of them feel dramatically better post-op day one or two because those ribs are no longer moving. Every rib has a big old intercostal nerve underneath, and when those sharp shards of bone are pushing on that nerve every time you breathe in and out, that's what causes the pain. But once we fix those ribs they'll of course still have pain from the fracture itself and then we of course inflict pain with our interventions but with our cryoablation and our multimodal pain control many of our patients go home feeling wonderful and I see them back in clinic and you know once once we've got titanium plates across those rib fractures I let them go back to doing whatever they want whatever they can tolerate they're not gonna they're not gonna break those plates loose unless they fall again and they probably won't break the plates loose they'll just break their ribs on either side of the actual uh, plate but people come back to clinic two weeks post-op and feel wonderful and are almost back to life as they know it and have little to no pain so their recovery is pretty quick for them because we speed that with the surgery. And mobility is really
0: a big issue I mean if you have a patient that is Say they're non-weight bearing on one leg And the treatment for that really is to then be able to use a four-wheeled walker if you have rib fractures and you can't lean on an arm because your rib fractures hurt every time you try to bear you know use that walker that really impairs your mobility so sometimes what we've noticed is that patients that we fix their ribs they're able to use the walker better because they have less pain and those ribs are supported and they don't move when they're using the walker and we know for sure that trauma patients lack of mobility raises your risk of a lot of things and so being able to restore that mobility and help patients get better faster is a a huge advancement and a huge advantage to rib fraction fixation.
1: Dr. Sedbeck, Dr. Slider, thank you for being on the show. If you have any questions for either of these two surgeons or a request on an upcoming topic or a request on a topic to be discussed on the show in the future, you can always reach me at aaron.sutton at wesleymc.com You can also find all our past episodes at traumatalk.podbean.com